0: would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey, which of a sojourn for the weekend down in Dorset. Thank you very much.
1: Nine cents, nine cents, is ten in perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and I'm actually recording this time. Gotta hand it to me. I, I can do this. Take two. <laughs> uh, I'm being joined by Witch Zaftig. How are you, my dear?
0: I'm quite well. How are you? <laughs> uh,
1: ready to go on a sojourn? Is it so, sojourn? Sojourn. Sojourn, actually. Sojourn. Oh, my. It is July the 19th, and we have a smashing show for you this week. I wish I knew another yeah. like really English solid word for week, but I don't. I don't know if there is one. Fortnight, um, <laughs> which
0: is actually two weeks, but like
1: who cares? <laughs> On the fortnight. Uh, well, it is going to be a wonderful show this week. We have nine cents letters, some commentary there, uh, something different with Heather Height, an orthodoxy with which Zaptic, Of course, you're here. Uh, this is episode eleven. What are we calling this one? Mm. So this
0: uh, week, or this this segment, we're going to talk about religion and the third gender. So I'm going to bring in some historical examples of transgenderism and how uh, three different uh, societies have dealt with this idea of people who don't quite fit uh, a binary of gender, and what it means to have a binary and how, and that space, that sort of special space involved for societies, and whether they're accepted or not, how they're dealt with or not, and... Um, Hopefully, it'll give a bit of an insight into our contemporary world.
1: binaries? Like two stars? Is this like two genders (laughs) referencing two stars?
0: Uh, Well, the idea that um, if a society has a very strict notion of gender, male-female, then anybody who doesn't fall along those lines then has to be dealt with in some way. So, um, contemporary gender rhetoric would say maybe the binary is one of, one of the issues, because we're sort of forcing people to fit in these, these ways, but that's sort of a contemporary discussion. Um, I want to give up examples of exactly how different societies have addressed the idea of a third gender, sometimes officially and Ooh. legally, and sometimes, sometimes as, a, as a way of, of uh, allowing space for people who don't fit.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds really, really interesting. Um, Okay, so we're going to do that in the middle of the show. Immediately following, we're going to do a little agent provocateur. This is episode 24, Yemen, terrorism, and reversing the Magna Carta. Darren D. always does a fantastic job, so look forward to that. And we're going to close it out with another Old Nick's Peep Show, episode 22, conceptualizing an issue. So uh, it's going to be a really... just jam-packed show. We're not gonna have a lot of chatting up front here. We're gonna leave that for the segments. Um, one quick note before we start. Next week, next week, oh, Satanism Today. Magister David Hello. Harris, he's finally here. The, the first episode of Satanism Today on Nine Cents. I am incredibly excited about this, and you should be too, because I think you and I which Zaftig might have a little insight about what might be the meh, 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 meh topic. <laughs> oh the haw. Yes, <laughs> That's my laughing without being obvious by laughing All right. Uh, I'm gonna try not to do that voice again and just let everyone know you can continue listening without uh, I'm um, afraid I
0: on the other hand I'm going to do my entire segment <laughs> in that voice so just prepare yourselves turn the treble down a
1: more. bit. <laughs> this is <will> be <laughs> just wonderful
0: it's going uh, to be wonderful smashing brilliant
1: <laughs> brilliant alright <laughs> uh, let's do a little nine sense letters <laughs> right. though I am an active member I do not speak for the Church of Satan.
0: Welcome to Nine Cents Letters. So the letter begins Hey, buddy, another good nine cents. When you're speaking about social media, it brought something to mind that I was recently thinking about. Maybe sometime you might talk about it on your show. I noticed a Satanist recently <coughs> badmouthed another Satanist in a formal group on Facebook. In doing so, they highlighted the person's name, which tagged that person, and therefore sent a notice to that person. This started a big argument between them. The thought then came to mind. The thought that came to mind is, once you tag someone, are you, digitally speaking, stepping into someone else's lair? Facebook makes me wonder, sometimes, how these rules apply, but it seems as though in the digital world, once you tag someone, you are connecting to their profile and should therefore show respect. What do you think?
1: Well, 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 this is, uh, okay, so this could be seen, <laughs> and I have to give this disclaimer before I do so. Give any commentary on this. This could very much seem like it's talking about uh, some, and I immediately thought it was about me when I saw this. I'm a completely egocentric individual because after reaching out to this individual, they actually gave me the real story behind it, and it has nothing to do with me. So that's refreshing (laughs) that I'm not seen as the (laughs) asshole that's constantly doing this. Um, However, it does bring up because I think all of us have experienced something similar to this. Um, It's almost like an exclamation point when someone tags you. They're like saying, you! I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm speaking to you and I'm making sure that everyone else around here knows it. I mean, there is a significant difference between just typing their name and then tagging them. I mean, one, it it forces them to recognize that you reference them, you know, by putting it in their sort of update notes that any social media has, and like alerting them. But also, it makes it hyper personal, and this can be done in a really, really good sense, as in "Great job, which Zafdig! You you did an amazing job on that essay." Or it could be yeah. "Which Zafdig! You are a fool for thinking X, Y, and Z." Yeah. <laughs> so it, it can and be. And both incredibly... are equally
0: plausible. You
1: know? <laughs> so. Both have happened to me personally. No, um. So in in the context of uh the discussion here, he's referencing the third satanic rule of the earth when in another's lair, show him respect or else do not go there. Um, So do you think, uh, which is Zaftik, that by tagging someone, connecting to their personal profile that you are in some way uh, entering their lair?
0: I think that tagging from, if it's not on their particular wall, then I think we have a little bit of a digital, foundational, uh, digital territorial gray area yeah. because uh when you tag someone essentially you're you are overtly alerting them to what you're claiming good or bad it doesn't really matter um so i don't quite necessarily consider that someone's lair although with the privacy policies and what can show up on your profile that's a then maybe it would right mm-hmm. but i i sort of view it as um that it if someone posts something on uh my particular wall that's Then that's my lair and it should be clear, you know, that shouldn't be like overt things. I have family Um, I don't just mean overt satanic things. I mean like overtly sexy things or things that yeah, I might joke about in person, but like maybe my you know a kid sister doesn't need to see it (laughs) right your (laughs) your bizarre fetish for X Y and Z that I would probably laugh at but maybe and I have colleagues on my Facebook page and all all sorts of things so in that sense certainly uh, I don't think everyone is as aware as they should be Uh, on the other sense I'm I really like the debate when it starts to devolve into uh, sort of name calling to me that's just uh, internet braggadocio. I don't really care. Uh, it doesn't advance the discussion. I'm also professionally trained to argue my position, <laughs> even when I get really heated. I uh, and it does happen. I certainly try to take a take a step back and say, what am I really trying to say? Do I just am I just irritated by this person? Like, does this person just irk me? And uh, I may not decide to to refrain from commenting, but I'll make certain that I'm arguing an issue over. Uh, Attacking that person personally, especially publicly Um, just you know, I I find I find it uh, I have no problem if someone attacks me personally then like in a a PM then we could hash it out although that's never happened, but I have uh, Realized inadvertently that some people have blocked me because sometimes you and I and when I found out who the people blocked me were I was surprised because I actually could not remember ever discussing anything with them ever. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and, I'm, and I was just sort of mentally thinking, like, did I even have this person on my friend's list? Did we ever interact on some social media? And I could not.: And I also think people have a right to block and unfollow and do all yeah. those things. When it's done publicly, I do find it a bit... Um, people can witness this. And it's not just about how this it looks in the COS, uh, It do, you know, for in terms of the non-COS people witnessing this kind of infighting. Yeah. It also, I does think, uh, give another person, everybody who's on your Facebook profile, an image of how you deal with conflict. So how you're dealing with someone who has issues with you does reflect on how everybody else will deal with you, even if they totally agreed. Like, you're right, that person was an ass. Uh, but it... It, it, just the way in real life, if you have a disagreement with a coworker and how you deal with it, even if everyone thinks you're right, mm-hmm. if you act in a certain way that isn't conducive to a professional work environment, it's going to look bad on you. So I feel that the Facebook stuff should be similar; that you should consider the how it would look, not just the overt name calling.
1: I think it's important to take all of that into consideration. Um, and we can really boil this down to the idea of um, satanic social networking and how to keep your best foot forward. Um, A a long time ago I had talked about controlling your individual conversation and that is how you present and how other people perceive you in social media. Um, When you are interacting online, you are really showing all of yourself, the worst and the best of you. And to go into that knowingly Uh, you can tailor a a vision of yourself. And a lot of people do this in a lot of different ways. What's important is that whenever you're in a group setting um, where you feel like some of those walls can be dropped, where you feel a little more comfortable to candidly discuss back and forth, uh, when it does turn to a heated debate, Uh, As soon as it starts devolving into name-calling, the best way to, in my opinion, to uh, proceed is to immediately stop the discussion and go to instant messaging. I've done this a number of times where um, it's just they refuse to either... um, Well, usually what happens, to be quite honest, is they read tone into what I'm saying. As if I'm mm-hmm. like intentionally talking down to them. I'm I'm a Satanist. I when I speak, I speak with a sense of authority. Whether or not, I, and even when I type, I type with a sense of authority. I'm, I'm not meaning everyone must like think or behave or act or do as I say. That's just how I present myself. I, yeah. I'm used to talking in a podcast for years where it's a one-way discussion at an empty microphone. If you don't speak from a position of authority, no one's gonna listen. And so I just sort of carry that throughout my regular life. What I, and this is a a fault of mine individually, I tend to do it without thinking. And so people perceive it in an offensive, forward, abrupt, direct way, which can be off-putting. And um, I mean, it's really, you know, short-sighted on my part for doing so sometimes, but it means that they don't listen to the message. This is right. one real reason why we don't do video on nine cents, because we don't want you to look at us and take our opinions based on how we appear. We want you to take the message as it's delivered. Once you start getting a sense of personality and individual in front of your eyes, the message is diluted by what you're seeing, whether you like it or whether you don't like it, you're going to color that message based on that interpretation. And it's something that we do just, we can't help it. And so when we have had an experience that's a negative or positive with someone, every post that we see from them, henceforth, uh, henceforth, haven't used that word in a long time, um, (laughs) is colored by that experience. So, um, And you just can't help it, but you do it. And this is what happens with me a lot. So I immediately take it to instant messaging saying, hey, I I absolutely respect that we don't agree here. I would love to have an honest discussion, but if it's gonna devolve into this type of a discussion, how about we just do it here rather than where everyone else can see it? Just because it, i'm not worried about me losing face i'm worried about you losing face like there's no need for us to go down this road because we both know where it'll end and i've never ever ever well this, this is not your one gentleman i always have a really healthy back and forth in this case but anyone else that i've gone down this road with they refuse they demand on having it in a public way and this in my opinion is very not it, it's you can't right. have a public argument just Attacking each other and this is again in a public forum. I'm going to get to your private wall in a second And ever have it look good if it's a if it's a debate without resorting to uh, uh, Personal attacks. Well, that's great. Continue that Uh, keep it on the intellectual side keep it on the the uh, professional individual Interpretation side, but don't get personal Um, and if you're perceiving things as being personal Why don't you just reach out to them and say hey? In, in I am, you know, private messaging, reaching out to them specifically saying, look, I think what you just said was really, really offensive. Can you please let me know if that's what you intended or not? And then let's hash it out. Let's figure out why. But what you run into a lot is people don't want to have that immediate back and forth. They just yeah. want to have some sort of public face. They just want to be the best person in this argument, no matter the case. And so they continue to uh, just attack and name call and uh make absurd statements that make zero sense from an outside perspective and really what they're doing is revealing how foolish they are to everyone else even if they get that sense of i won everyone else is looking at them like jackass and everything you say from that moment on is going to be colored with jackass
0: yeah and i would i would say that having just in my years online witnessing this several thousands of times <laughs> yeah, yeah, no matter who uh say or not is that both parties always look jerky it's extremely rare that one person does come out on top sometimes marginally but every time there is engagement in a personal attack then it just becomes too i, I look at it as the pissing contest and and some people find that entertaining i find that Kind of annoying. I tend to not read through them because I think, oh, okay, this is what it's devolved into. It went from X, a disagreement, which I always find uh, healthy and invigorating, and I like to see where people can push their thought to. Um, You're an ass and a jerk, <laughs> yeah. and if I saw you in real life, I would hit you in the face. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> sure. sure, sure, you would. Sure. sure. <laughs> to, to, to me, to me, like the Facebook threat of physical violence is the most absurd thing. If we were together, I'd punch you in the face. I'm like, even if you had the capability, let's just say we were together, the likelihood that you actually would stand up in an argument and punch me in the face is extremely uh, implausible. For one, um, I mean, like, guy, girl, it doesn't matter. To me, like this, well, you're at your computer right now. What is it you think that this threat conveys? (laughs) There's all kinds of reasons why it's wrong.
1: So I, I do want to touch on the the, the personal uh, page. So whether whatever social media, I'm going to use Facebook as the example. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has a sort of personal profile on in social media, and and when you take um, your thoughts and opinions to someone's personal profile, that's where that's when and where I do think you should apply that third satanic rule of the earth. I don't think it's a hundred percent. Accurate because the reality is is you're on a third-party uh, yeah. website and they have ultimate and absolute Authority and control you're a visitor there um, Even though you've carved out this little corner for yourself. It's still not really yours So True. That's why I, I, I honestly think we need to take an objective look at how we present ourselves in these little personal spheres and what we expect other people uh, to not only think of interacting with us but how they interact with us because it's it's not exactly like they're coming to your house. There is something dramatically different about face to face saying I'm gonna have a discussion with you then I'm gonna punch you in the face versus I'm gonna sit at a keyboard and have a conversation with you and then threaten to punch you yeah. in the face. It's much more hollow, it's much more uh, plastic, it's not quite as real, and we have to keep that in mind. That being said, I at the very beginning of this conversation, which is haptic, you had mentioned that um, you don't think anyone should post on your wall things that are inappropriate for others that may have access to your wall, and I have to mm-hmm. absolutely agree with that. You don't go into someone's home who has a family over, like let's say it's a family reunion, because the reality is, and it's a school and family reunion mixed. Because the yeah. reality is, that's kind of what the Facebook page is. It's,
0: and coworkers. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, <laughs> and and
1: a work party. You're walking into this party with family, friends, and coworkers, and just shouting the stupidest things out there, and everyone's like, "What? How could you?" You know, because remember that blowjob <laughs> joke that we were talking
0: about the other day? Wasn't that hilarious? Hilarious.
1: Was hilarious? In the same way that you tailor your interactions through lesser magic, as a Satanist, you must be doing this. I'm not even saying it's an option. I'm saying if you do not use lesser magic in your life, you are not actually acting like a satanist if you don't use lesser magic in social media on other people's walls tailor your interactions that exact same way as if you walked into a big party and everyone was there you're going to be respectful you're going to keep your dramatic opinions to yourself and if you're going to have a private conversation do so privately do not show your cock that is, like, <laughs> that is the biggest thing you just yeah. don't wanna do. And I don't necessarily even mean sexually showing body parts. I just mean, don't reveal how stupid you are in public situations by thinking, by posting on this individual's wall, yeah. it's private. It's not, it is public and everyone will be able to see it. And you're gonna look like a total douchebag. Apply satanic ideas here to your life in general and don't for- forget them in social media. It's incredibly important. Um, so again, is this your lair? Not really, but let's treat it like it anyway. Because you're going to have social reactions as if it were. Yeah. And it's, it's as real as everyone witnessing it. And that's what you really got to think about in social media. Not how you feel or how the person you're speaking to feels. A good Witcher warlock is going to understand how that interaction is perceived by everyone watching everyone. it. Yeah. And when you're in a public sphere i.e. any social media outside of an instant message, it is public. Yeah. So, uh, you know, act accordingly. I'm, I'm guilty of uh, showing my ass from time to time. <laughs> Have you found yourself in that situation as well?
0: Oh me never!
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm talking that. oh my god, I'm like so perfect like all the time. <laughs> I uh, it's totally I, I get uh, my but my the particular way that I show my ass is um, I will get the ultra-argumentative way um, because I'm an academic and I'm trained to argue my position. Yeah. Sometimes even when I don't agree with what I'm saying, if I'm irked, I will just push it push it <laughs> until that person is 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 buried under yeah. my rhetoric. So I have a I have a tendency to, to bury someone under academic speak that sounds great uh, even if I don't agree with it. And I, I recognize this tendency in myself just to be the... Biggest baddest argument of bitch yeah. <laughs> that I can. <laughs> Let me show you well, that accent. <laughs> <I
1: can. clears throat> yeah. Uh, we all are going to fall into this from time to time. What's important is not that you fall into it from time to time. It's that you take a step back afterward and you realize the mistakes. If you feel like you need to correct in some way, do so, but go into future interactions knowing the mistakes you made and learn from them. That's the biggest and most important aspect of this. We're not talking about what people think of you. That's less important. We're talking about how you present yourself and that is really important especially as a satanist you cannot practice lesser magic unless you control your own your own vision your own conversation and uh social media is one very real aspect of our lives that uh unfortunately people are not as careful about so uh as satanists let's be a little more careful shall we
0: all right, um, so uh, we can sum it as no dick pics and no thre- <laughs> punching threats. Got it. <laughs> it's
1: very true. It's very true. Um, all right, let's do a little something different, and then unorthodoxy. It's been too long. It has been too long.
0: So-
2: And welcome to another segment of Something Different with Heather Height on Nine Cents. Today, I'll be covering the first in a series of segments about banned, censored, or forgotten cartoons. I won't be covering all of the Warner Brothers Censored 11, a list of cartoons that has been restricted by Warner Brothers because they were all pulled for the same reason and that would get repetitive. I encourage you to look them up and check them out for yourself. I found this first short from the censored 11 list and decided to start with this because not only in my opinion it's the most significant cold black and the seven dwarfs is a merry melodies cartoon directed by bob clampett produced by leon Schlesinger, and released to theaters on january 16, 1943 by warner brothers an all-black parody of the brothers grim fairy tale specifically disney's version of the story It was pulled from distribution due to its use of darky iconography. I did not make that up. It's a legitimate, non-ironic phrase used to describe the depiction of black characters reminiscent of blackface. In addition to its stereotypical depiction of black characters, it also contains a lot of strong sexual innuendo, and because it's a World War II era cartoon, it has an anti-Japanese segment that consists of a few frames where it's written on the side of a van that belongs to a company called Mur- Murder Incorporated, specifically stating, we rub out anybody, midgets half price, Japs free. Nobody liked the Japs. Of course they were free. Cole Black and the 7 Dwarfs was the first Warner Brothers short almost entirely written and voiced by an almost all-black cast. Director uh, Bob Clampett stated in several interviews that he met the cast of a Duke Ellington review called jump for joy backstage after a show. According to Clampett, Duke Ellington and the cast brought up the idea of an all-black cartoon, but I'm pretty sure he was just backpedaling. The fact is it doesn't matter who brought it up. Several of the cast members did collaborate on the storyboard phase, two of which were jazz pianist Eddie Beale and jazz singer Herb Jeffries. Clampett wanted Eddie Beale and his orchestra to score the entire film, but contract agreements with Carl W. Stalling prevented that their part of the score was reduced to the kissing scene, even though Stalling's score is all jazz. I think there's a notable difference between the standard Stalling cartoon music and this. Clampett did, however, accomplish booking Eddie Beale and his orchestra to score Tin Pan Alley Cats, another short from the Censored Eleven list, and a tribute to Fats Waller. The opening scene of Coal Black and the Seven Dwarfs is with a mammy voiced by Lillian Randolph rocking a little girl on her lap silhouetted by the glow of a fireplace. Lillian Randolph, to me, is a legend, having voiced mammy two-shoes for just about every Tom and Jerry cartoon. Considering her extensive career, I know that might be a little silly for me to admire her for that, but I really love cartoons. Sadly, and in a gross over-exaggeration out of the fear of being seen as racist, Lillian Randolph's voice was dubbed over in many of the Tom and Jerry cartoons, and in, in a lot of cases, the character was completely cut out and replaced with a white character. Randolph's work was already uncredited as was every voice actor in most cases, and slowly it's being deleted like the image of a woman from a Hasidic newspaper. Good job, NdolacP. You've made black culture offensive. Pretty soon everything will be white. Just listen to this horribly offensive performance. Oh, honey child, what story would you like to have Mammy tell you tonight? (laughs) about so white auntie and dross <laughs> mammy well once there was a mean old queen and she lived in a gorgeous castle and was that old girl rich <laughs> she was just as rich as she was mean she had everything following that was the old world war ii hoarder gag the mean old queen's riches are tires, sugar, coffee, and liquor. The remainder of the dialogue is all spoken in rhyme, starting with the large, unattractive, masculine queen, voiced by Warner Brothers regular Danny Webb, also uncredited. This time, due to Mel Blanc's contract agreement at the time, that he gets sole credit on projects he voiced. Conjuring up the prince with mirror, mirror on the wall. Send me a prince about six feet tall. Prince Chawman, spelled C-H-A-W-M-I-N, voiced by American jazz vocalist Leo Zoot-Walson, is a wonderful character. He's my favorite. He comes rolling up in what I think is supposed to be a Rolls Royce. One of the tires has been replaced by men's oxfords on spokes, and he has on a Zoot suit slash tux, a manacle in his eye, and a gold grill with dice for incisors. The suit jacket looks yellow, but that may be due to the age of the film. However, yellow is a repeated theme with the Prince Chaman character. Because there aren't enough stereotypes going on with this character to be offended by, it's cited as a slight against black men. I think it's because he's a draft dodger, or merely not a soldier but I'm not looking to pile up reasons to be offended. The prince exclaims his attraction to the evil queen's gal, So White. That mean old queen, she shows a flank, but her gal so white is dynamite! <laughs> so White is voiced by actor-singer Vivian Dandridge.
1: My hair's cold black, but my name's
3: So White. I wash it all day,
2: and I get the blues in the lab. Vivian is the sister of Academy Award nominee Dorothy Dandridge. Their mother, Ruby Dandridge, is the sweet voice of the Queen used to schmooze the other characters, starting with a phone call to the aforementioned Murder Incorporated, who grabs So White from Prince Chalman, leaving him standing by the side of the road with a yellow streak up his back. As they whisk her away to, as the Queen puts it, black out So White... Unlike her white counterpart who appeals to her executioner's big heart, convincing him to spare her life, So White takes a more realistic approach, indicated by the elation of the lipstick-kiss-covered faces of her captors as they release her in the forest. This has been criticized as a stereotypical depiction of the black woman as the whore, in my opinion, based on my experience with men. You got a bunch of guys writing a wacky cartoon spoofing Snow White. They get to the part where she convinces the dude not to kill her, and somebody says, Sure, I'll let you go, Snow White, but first, what are we going to do about this? Or insert any variation of whatever blowjob jokes were popular in the era. So White then meets the seven dwarfs, who are all enlisted in the U.S. Army, as all good patriotic Americans of the time should be. Rather than in a cottage, they all live in one big tent in the boot camp, and so White goes right to work as the camp cook. This controversial cartoon has been criticized, banned, protested, and highly praised, with none of the blame or, again, credit directed at the character's creator, Gene Hazelton. This time, the missing credit is due to the expense of letters in the title card. Aside from designing the characters for Cole Black and the Seven Dwarfs, Gene Hazleton also created Pebbles and Bam Bam and worked on the animated sequence for the movie Invitation to the Dance, starring Gene Kelly. More effort and research went into this production than almost any other Warner Brothers cartoon. Members of the crew attended shows at the Los Angeles nightclub, the Alabama, to study the dance form, language, humor, and music of the jazz culture. Bob Clampett's love and respect for this culture is evident in both this which is considered by many to be his masterpiece, and his tribute to Fats Waller, Tim Pan, Alley Cats. But by all means, delete away the history and culture of everything not white and replace it with the non-offensive generic white people stereotypes so that everybody can feel safe. So thank you again for listening to Something Different with Heather Haidt on 9 Cents. Oh, and I want to thank the person who messaged me, Jeremy, about the cover of Killing in the Name of that I had on the previous episode he found the name of the band which is kind of why I put it up there because I didn't know the name of the band and I wanted somebody to tell me um, I'll post that in the something something different Facebook page which you should already be following you can also find me on Twitter at Heather Height email me at heatherheight at yahoo.com and say wonderful nice things to me because I deserve it because I'm wonderful and nice or something <laughs> Have a great week. Hail Satan. Yes, your feet's too big.
0: Can't stand you cause your guys, your feed's too big. Say I can't tolerate you, nay-nay, cause your feet's too big. Cedric, on your feet
4: and earn your salary, son, blow
3: everyone, I'm a den or den. If you ever get cold, you can stay in the corner of a room. They're generally 90 degrees. Or, you can listen to my segment, Militant Eroticism, at the end of every month on 9 Cents Podcast. I'll either piss you off, or get your pelvis grooving. Either way, you'll be
5: warm. Oh.
1: Fascination
0: is a binding. Which comes from the spirit of the witch, through the eyes of him that is bewitched, entering fascination to the mind. Now the instrument of fascination is the spirit, namely a certain pure lucid subtlety generated of the pure blood spirit of the witch by the heat of the heart. Welcome to uh, the episode 11 of Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig. So this segment, we're going to talk about uh, the concept of the third gender and its relationship to religion, because in most societies, this idea of being a third gender has strong ties to what it means to a religious expression. And I want to give you three historical examples of transgenderism. Now, I'm using the term transgender um, and essentially, in a way to, um, even though this is now a sort of a contemporary term, but uh, I'm kind of blanketing saying anybody who doesn't quite fit this binary, strict binary of male and female. So the first, um, the, the first statement I should say, but for most human societies, is that they, have, they do have a relatively strict view of what it means to be male and female. And gender roles um, in most societies are clearly defined. Uh, women do this, men do that. Even though in different societies, what women do and what men do Uh, changes depending on the society, they still tend to define these things uh, in very separate ways and that the crossover is extremely rare, a seamless crossover. Usually in terms of transgenders they have to make space for people that don't fit this binary. So let me start with, uh, just so I can sort of give you examples of what it is I'm talking about and at the end we'll revisit this concept of what it means to conceptually think of a third gender. So in a lot of uh, North American indigenous tribes, uh, there's uh, quite a few that have this concept of a, of a two-spirited person or a third gender. Uh, the berdash is what the, the term is used. So the berdash have this concept that is, is more than the European-slash-American notion of homosexuality. But it's actually a, a broader understanding. It's an individual of a definite physiological sex, male or female, but who then assumes the role and status of the opposite sex, but who is viewed by the community as being not man, not woman, and unlike man, and unlike woman, that has a very definite third type of gender. Uh, spiritually, the Beldash are considered to have an enhanced spirituality because they can access um, both male and female realities. And this relates to the cosmological significance often because uh, before the earth was formed and before there was gender, differenti- before gender differentiation developed, the idea of the primordial man had no gender, and I mean primordial human <laughs> had no gender. So the, the two spirited people are, are viewed as someone that has enhanced capabilities and can act as shamans and healers. So in a lot of these indigenous societies, uh, pre colonialism, uh, they, the third gender people, the Veldash, had a sanctioned uh, official space. And not just sanctioned and official, but um, uh, welcomed and accepted and exalted because they had special gifts, special properties. Uh, with Christianity, the notion of the baldash um, has shifted because um, they become a bit more suppressed under the weight of um, Western Christian imperialism. Because the history of Christianity uh, from the biblical text has a very firm two-gender type of uh, binary, male and female. And even in Western context right now, uh, it's that sort of still present in our world today with different people's reaction to transgenderism um so they're not just a mixture of male and female but a separate gender and that's that's an important to think of conceptually they're not someone who's blurring lines there's they're actually a third separate gender from male and female the second example i want to give to you is uh the south asian hijitas so hijitas uh in india and um, a couple well, a lot of places in South Asia, are male-bodied persons that identify as female, and uh, they tend to sacrifice their genitals, castration, to a goddess in return for spiritual prowess. So it's an institutionalized a sub- subculture, these hijitas. In Bangladesh, for example, hijitas uh, can be householding men and feminine-identified they can, be, they can be both. But it's not just about castration, uh, because that's the history of castration and the hijitas isn't always. Um, they didn't always coincide. Uh, but you become full realized as a hijita hood through a ritual, uh, through rituals, communal process. Uh, so this sometimes involves castration and sometimes not. They have entire festivals that celebrate these uh, newly emasculated hijita with myths and rites that combine uh, Muslim and Hindu symbolism which is kind of uh, fascinating because we tend to view Islam as extremely uh, homophobic of these things but there's lots of areas that if the concept of the third gender pre-existed Islam, then then the Hijida understanding of being Muslim actually then coincides with their notion of being Hijida. So uh, the tolerance and accommodation stems from the Hindu veneration of androgyny. You can picture some of these Hindu gods that have depicted both as male and female. And so they are... uh, Sacrosanct uh, intermediate beings in that similar way of the third gender in indigenous societies. So, some scholars call the castration an imposed violence uh, because then these people that didn't necessarily practice it before, when Islam invaded, when uh, the Mughals invaded India, the the castration became a lot more a way to uh, renounce Hindu uh, practices and adopt. Islam, so sort of as an extension of circumcision uh, for these men. But then, but once it happens, they are then female. It's the only way for them to be fully accepted is to then get rid of their genitals in the in the modern context. So, uh, but even in the uh, ancient world of the Mughals, like eunuchs were in royal courts, and uh, although it's it's sort of discussed or like debated whether or not these eunuchs considered themselves transgendered. Was just um, a necessity of the court. I'm sure some would and some wouldn't, but um, I'm not entirely sure of that lineage. But the modern day Hijitas in South Asia tend to claim the lineage from uh, royal eunuchs in Mughal courts. Today in India, the third gender is officially recognized as an other status, a third gender, um, which is a um, uh, fascinating. Um, type of advancement for since 2014 uh, because they've had this, this third gender concept. And because with colonial rule and colonial rule uh, rulers didn't quite know how to deal with these uh, types of people because it didn't fit with the Western notion um, and they sort of dismissed it and suppressed it. So it is uh, an interesting development that now they have full legal status. Now the finally, the final, um, example I want to give is the Albanian sworn versions. And so here's an, uh, an, uh, a distinct example of females living as males. So uh, in these uh, Western Balkans, Kosovo, Macedonia, Serbia, Montenegro, um, since the medieval times, they have this document called the Kunan laws. Uh, so it's about, about 500 years old. And a lot of different societies at the time had adopted this type of uh, legal document. Uh, the societies were patrilineal, um, so only passed on through the uh, male line, like property only passed on through the male line, and patrilocal, which means that when a woman gets married, she goes and lives with the, her husband's family. She essentially becomes property. She's always been property. Females are not considered legally persons or independent. They're considered property. So when they get married, they, they just the property gets transferred from their father's household to their husband's household. So, what do you do uh, if you don't want to get married? If you have no male hair, heirs, um, or uh, different types of problems that arise? So, the, especially if if there's no male heirs in the society where females cannot own property, they're barred from access to voting. They cannot wear certain clothing. They cannot smoke. They can't buy land. They can't do certain jobs. <laughs> so. What do you do? And when there's lots of uh, blood feuds, which is one of the reasons that um, there was a a distinct, a a higher than average lack of male heirs in these societies, because the males were often killing each other. (laughs) Um, Like uh, yeah, (laughs) they do. Men do like (laughs) to do that. Um, The uh, a sworn virgin could then, uh, in front of twelve male elders of her village, um, make a vow of lifelong celibacy. And she's permitted to live life as a man and be called a man. And she wears male clothes. She can be armed. She has a male name. She can smoke. She can drink. She can work. She can socialize with other men. And she can talk openly with them. All things that if she was living as a female, she would not be allowed to do. So there's lots of benefits to this. So uh, as I mentioned, if there's no male heirs, Sometimes the family makes a decision. Okay, you daughter X are going to be a sworn virgin. Sometimes it's a female who decides that she wants to avoid a bad marriage. Um, they're going to fix her up with someone and she's property, so she has no say. Um, decides then to here's an out. I'm going to become a sworn virgin. Or sometimes um, there's been incidents of those who wanted to avoid marriage entirely. Um, As in the concept itself, not even a good match or a bad match, the concept itself of being a wife um, was abhorrent. So here's another option. So the social, it's more the social reasons, uh, it, it, it appears, as opposed to someone being transgender. Although there is a percentage of them, we don't quite know, that claim that they never felt quite female and always felt male. So there is a social reason and then a biological reason, I would, uh, if I'm gonna frame this in a way. So um, there's, what the society is claiming is, you as a female cannot have all these things, but here's a way for you to uh, transgress these boundaries. Our gender binaries are so strict That even if your family is starving and you have no land, we're never going to allow a female to inherit the land. But then if you live as a man and you don't have sex, this is what I find kind of interesting. It's the sexual activity that negates it. She has to never get married and not be sexually active for them to live as a man. Um, uh, So here's three examples of transgenderisms for different different reasons. Uh, There are many more. Most societies have this this concept in the Western world, because of the legacy of, of Christianity, that has defined um, gender solely as between a man, as, as not just uh, has as only a male or a female, and nothing in between. It has created a bit of a conflict. Although Christianity itself has a, also a long history of how to deal with these people, they just don't allow space for a third gender. Uh, they, in then, instead join the clergy. So there's plenty of uh, examples of women, especially, who didn't want to get married because their family was trying to arrange something and decided, you know what, I'm going to go become a nun. I'll be able to, you know, be taught how to read and write. I can write music. I can engage in different social activities. Uh, So joining You know, a nunnery actually offered more freedoms than it would than being uh, a married woman who would who is legally obliged to stay at home and just pop out children one after another. (laughs) And that would be her life's work. Hard manual labor where she doesn't even have a legal status as a person. So so religion has dealt with this kind of thing uh, in different ways. And what I found interesting about sort of giving you even these very brief examples is because some of the conflict today in our modern world, and now that we have this whole concept of, of, of transgenders and different people talking about the language and, and what it means to call someone and, and the pronoun wars, is one i'm trying to say it's really not new (laughs) and our our objection to it and our aversion to it is because we are also stuck in this idea that there's only one way to be female and one way to be male and this is it there are two genders and anybody who fits outside of it i'm also suggesting possibly that uh, uh that that uh, castration or gender reassignment surgery is, uh, in a way, sometimes also... um, I I absolutely think that many transgenders would have sexual assignment surgery, um, whether or not they felt forced to. But I sometimes find the focus on the surgery and the genitals a bit uh, uh, unfortunate, because if our society had space for a third gender, Maybe then this idea of chemically changing your body wouldn't be necessary. So the indigenous cultures never had the concept of castration or chemically altering their body. They could dress and wear clothes, but so this idea of 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 going to the the full change, as as, and I and I want to be very clear what I'm saying. I'm not saying I'm not against people who go for the full change. Absolutely not. But I am suggesting that perhaps if we're still so stuck in this idea that there's only two genders, then people feel forced to choose, forced to go one way or another, and which would include sometimes surgery. And there's plenty of, in the transgender community now, people who talk about maybe the surgery isn't isn't necessary, like live the way you want. You're going to look confusing to people, but so what? People are going to be freaked out about you. But the more that we sort of advocate for being who we want to be, the more that Um, people will sort of get used to seeing the idea of someone who is transgender, even if it makes them uncomfortable, because it does. It makes a lot of people really uncomfortable because they're not used to it. It's strange. We can't can't name it. There's no concept of a third gender in our society, so we don't even know where to put these people. So we call them freaks and we have all these names. Whatever. I'm not trying to be the do-gooder. I'm trying to just alert the fact that it's because the society itself doesn't have space for these people, even though the entire history of humanity has always had people who didn't fit the binary. So my suggestion is third side perspective, third gender, maybe as Satanists we have interesting things to say about this or not. Uh, LeVay certainly hinted at it in several of his texts um, in The Satanic Witch. He sort of says, women of this body type who look more boyish are more successful at passing as a man— um, in one of the texts of letters to the devil, um, letters from the devil, uh, yeah. someone writes, uh, a young boy writes in and says, uh, I'm born in a male, but I've always felt that I was female. Do you think I'm crazy? And Levey's answer was really brief and really quick. Nope. And here's the name of a couple psychiatrists who would agree with me. I don't think you're crazy at all. They can probably help you. And that was 40 years ago, before this whole rhetoric of transgenderism existed. So from mm-hmm. the very beginning, Levey was like, there's people that don't fit and let them be let them be who they are
1: this is one of the uh one of the many reasons i absolutely adore satanism and and what anton levey did uh, by codifying it is that um to take a bit of a step back here we perceive reality through our uh cultural exchanges how we are Mm -hmm. informed as children and how our society interacts That is what normal is to us. And that's why, you know, when today we see a transgender and we've never been, I mean, human beings by our nature love to categorize things. It's what binds (laughs) and separates us. It is our tribal mentality in our lizard brains. This is who and what we are as human beings we categorize. I mean, it's one of our downfalls as well. But when when you're speaking in terms of uh, sexual or gender identity... It becomes a problem because if you've never yeah. been expo- exposed to it, if you've never been uh, uh, educated about it, you're at a complete loss. You're just sort yeah. of looking at uh, you're looking at Columbus coming over the ocean for the first time as a primitive. Right. Like, what the hell is this? I, yeah. I don't even know how to react. So it's understanding the confusion. It's understanding yeah. um, the and. Understanding though I don't accept uh, the reaction. It's understanding that we would, in- at times, react aggressively. I mean that's what human beings do when we don't understand. Sure. We run and hide, or we, you know, sort of fight or flight syndrome. Um, and so I understand it
0: or, and kill. We tend to, we tend yeah, to kill yeah, yeah. a lot of transgenders, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> it's it's actually I mean it's it's horrible. It's it's yeah. I, I hate laughing about any of that because it's it's so. It's it's real, and that's, yeah. that's what's unfortunate about it. But um, even though at times you know jokes can be funny, <laughs> I have to acknowledge that. Um, but pulling it back to the Satanism uh, aspect of it, Satanism was not um, codified in a bubble. Anton LaVey was exposed to a whole vast human history of experience and thought, and that's what he used to codify Satanism. Yeah. And that's why, to him, and, and to anyone who follows, or not, I'm sorry, not follows, but studies any of his writings, you're going to see that same thing where it doesn't matter. Oh, you identify as a homosexual? Well, nothing new here. Move on. You know, do the best that you can do. Uh, you identify as a, a different gender than you were born? Well, okay, normal. Nothing new here. Move along. Because he has that that knowledge that education of human history that the majority of us, even though we like to think of ourselves as open and egalitarian as we can be, we are just ignorant to. We just haven't been exposed to it, whether it's our fault or whatever, or our culture's fault or our society's fault. Um, we fall into these same little pit traps. And so it's, it's just a wonderful thing to know um, through your segment here that this is, and, and maybe this is the first time a lot of these people um, listening have ever these people, our audience, have ever been exposed to this, uh, these ideas, but I I think it's important that they understand them. Um, Yeah. This this is what it means to be a human being. There's no such thing as a black and white. We, as a society, have deemed things black and white. Religion has been a strong enforcer of this idea, good and evil, but it's not a reality and it's a, a, a manufactured concept. It's just not real. And so we have to look at this as especially as Satanists that we're human beings and how you experience life is the most important part of it, not how Mm -hmm. other people and by you uh, trying to impose your ideas on other people about sexual identity, gender identity, um, uh, religious tolerance, whatever it is, that's not Satanic. Yeah. It is not. And it's important to understand.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that the gender, um, discussion is really, uh, well, it's fascinating to me because a lot of people don't quite understand just how embedded it is. So, um, if a man insults another man, um, one of the worst things he can call him is a pussy, right? So female genitalia, you are not a fully realized man. I'm going to to call you female genitalia. Uh, when I'm being assertive, I am often called a ballbuster, <laughs> as opposed to being <laughs> as opposed to being a, a natural-born leader or someone who has focus and someone who knows how to organize larger groups of people in a relatively seamless way. And like so, it's so we are always engaging in the gender dynamic with our language and behavior. So the whole 1980s um, fashion of so women are more and more entering the corporate world, and one of the fashions that pops up is those large shoulder pads. So, and when you think about it, the large shoulder pads mimics male body type. Mm-hmm. So here's the pantsuit with the low, wide shoulder pads in the 1980s and the big hair, and, <laughs> sure, and, sure, and the women were also wearing heels. That's fine, but mm-hmm. the idea is so that the fashion is mimicking the is mimicking the notion that women are increasingly entering male-only spaces, and, and when women enter male-only spaces, they are sort of mimicking the dress Nowadays, that's not so common, but when it first started happening in waves, a lot larger waves, um, after second wave feminism, uh, I always find it this fascinating idea of looking at the textiles and how people dress and behave and and use this sort of androgyny uh, to cross these boundaries and what it means. It's way more acceptable, for instance, for a female to wear male clothing than it is for a male to wear female clothing, because the whole notion of what it means to be a man is not to be female (laughs) whereas uh, like that's it it, it, in encapsulated in the definition the conceptual idea of being a man is whatever it is that you want you understand to be a man just make sure that you are not a female
1: (laughs) that's the epitome it's it's really interesting it i've run into um situations like this uh of uh learned understanding of these ideas of sexuality and gender and how as an adult you have to sort of filter yourself, and how it can mm. be really challenging. So I, sure. I result to the um, the pussy name calling, yeah, a lot, and like you, you never go into it thinking. I am going to call them a female genitalia because that is, you know, perceived as being bad if you identify as a man. I just think you're you're being a and here's another one, you're being a bitch. Stop being a bitch. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. it's weird. I've I've run into this where I, I've had to consciously remove the word faggot from my um, vocabulary. Red. Because growing up, I never associated it with sexuality in any way. No, neither. Even though that's where I mean that's <laughs> like it or not, that's kind of where socially it came from. Um, we that's just how we referred to each other and it's because it was a learned uh, a learned term It was just in the culture that I was raised in and so I've had to forcibly think you know I imagine if I was um, from the south then it would be nigger that I would have to be trying to remove sure. but I th- that word wasn't a part of My vernacular I don't apply to it uh, faggot was and now I have to yeah. consciously think about how I'm interacting and As we're talking about this, I want to make sure that it's clear, um, certainly from my perspective, um, and I'm assuming from yours as well, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, as individual Satanists, we recognize uh, what you're saying, where uh, it it is not a new idea, transgenderism. Um, Mm -hmm. it, It does not assault your way of living by someone identifying as a transgender, but it doesn't mean that you still can't feel the way you feel. You know, just because it's not normal, just because it may be normal, it doesn't mean that you... We're not saying that everyone has to get along with everyone. That's not life. That's not reality. If if for some reason inside of yourself, you absolutely hate uh, anything, whether it's a gender or uh, a non-gender individual, that's you. I don't care. You do you. You do your thing. We're just saying on the surface, there's no real reason aside from your learned culture,
0: mm-hmm. limited
1: culture that's why and uh you take it from there i, I think that's important I, I definitely don't want anyone walking away from this being like well they're saying satan should all hold hands and be loved no no no, no. i don't care. hate who you want you do you
0: <laughs> i i'm i'm always fascinated by um who and who is not um behaving as a feminist so let me explain what i mean um uh, people react in this in the church of satan react to feminism in in different ways some yeah Uh, Call themselves feminists, some don't, some actively attack uh, feminism in (laughs) every way. I'm less concerned about that and more concerned about the the behavior. And uh, so uh, I'm going to give you just a couple of examples from uh, my dating life. So I have uh, dated a couple of men that were (laughs) (laughs) very small, brief, uh, (laughs) no details so people can't be identified type of information. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Uh, but so I have dated um, uh, uh, more than a couple men who were uh, 20 years or more older. So here's this big uh, gender gap and uh, dated men who are my age. I tend not to go for uh, younger men because that's just uh, babysitting. So <laughs> 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 but it's always been really fascinating and eye opening to me how sometimes a man my age, uh, even though he will spout feminist rhetoric and is up in all the terms and the proper things to say, behaves less... In a way, because the contemporary man is a little bit more threatened about his place in society. He's not exactly sure where he fits in a world where women are entirely independent, mostly legally, you know, and can live their lives without ever being attached to a man, and it's not considered terribly weird, you know, and it's not illegal, and they don't, and they're not under, under threat for it. So men don't quite know where they fit, um, uh, although they'll spout uh, they'll spout a lot of rhetoric about. Uh, you know, being equal, but they'll also make snide comments to me as I advance in my career, (laughs) where I think like, oh, that's interesting. Like, so (laughs) you may, you may even call yourself a feminist, maybe, maybe not. But somehow me advancing in my career is, is interpreted as a threat. And I compare that to some of the older men who are 20 years my senior, who aren't up on feminist rhetoric at all, are probably a little uncomfortable to varying degrees with notions of transgender and gay marriage and all these things and it's just kind of a bit it's it's past them it's a bit weird um, but yet as older men they are secure in their position in society um, they don't feel threatened in any way so that they've never been threatened by my success ever and 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 my choices, and I find that a really interesting dichotomy about who who is and is not threatened by the success of the women that they're involved with, and what it would mean in the society. Because the the older man who doesn't care and who thinks it's great and totally encourages you to uh, be whatever you want in the world, because his position isn't threatened. The younger man's position is threatened. He doesn't he does not know where he fits entirely, and until. Until the society kind of figures that out, I think you're going to see a quite. I see a lot of it of what it means then to be a man in the contemporary world, where traditionally what is defined as as a man um, is also you know things that women can do. Well, then what does it mean then to be a man if women can yeah. also do all these things? So it's uh, to me it's a fascinating challenge to the gender identity and what it means to have all this fluidity. I find it exciting and interesting, even. Not, not even when, but especially when it makes people uncomfortable. Because to me, then that yeah. shows, oh, there's something there. If, if it makes you uncomfortable, it means there's something there that's being challenged, in, in an assumed position you didn't even know you had, an implied mm-hmm. dichotomy. You know, so um, uh, I'd actually be interested to hear um, if anybody wanted to write me. At uh, zaftikworks at gmail.com, uh, uh, are you transgender in the COS? What's your been your reaction and your experience? How do you understand Satanism in terms of transgenderism? Uh, it would be fascinating to me and and maybe in future segments we could even uh, revisit it in according to this because it does relate to religion and how people understand Satanism in terms of their sexual identity.
1: Well that's fantastic. Thank you so much uh, with Zaptic. That's amazing. And thank you. I, I really missed last month because I mean, whenever we get together and whenever you, whenever you present these these uh, really wonderful ideas, I, I feel like I learn a little bit more and I as a, a human being after you learn you grow a little bit more and that makes me feel mm-hmm. really good. So that's um,
0: my job.
1: <laughs> you're amazing. Thank I'm an, you so much. I'm a much. guru. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're you're a, you're a shaman woman.
0: I'm a guru. Pay me.
1: Hell yeah. Well, if you want to donate to uh, Zafdig, that's ZapdigWorks at gmail.com. No, I I do. Seriously, if if you have any questions about um, religion or, I mean, do you want to run over uh, your areas of expertise real quick?
0: Yeah, so um, I can uh, directly address the notions of uh, Western esotericism, new religious movements, um, magic and the occult. Um, those are my areas of specialization, uh, but I also do quite a bit of ritual theory and gender theory. And anything I didn't have access to directly for what I look at, um, I consult colleagues in different books. That's what I do for a living research. So anything to do with religion in general, um, you send me a question. Uh, as mentioned, the email is zaftigworks, all one word, at gmail.com, or there's an unorthodoxy with which Zaftig Facebook page. You can uh, message me there also.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Let's, uh, let's do a little agent provocateur with Darren side and uh, follow it up with old Nick's
3: peep show. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat nor a Republican. I am not a socialist nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian, and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause, Celebra, means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Welcome back to Agent Provocateur, where the pulse of adversarialism against herd thinking is alive and well. I am Darren Deicide. The U.S. and its relationship to the world has been one of the centerpiece topics here at Agent Provocateur, though I reserve the right to skewer any topic that deserves it. Those who follow my newswire dedicatedly, and I know you're out there because I see that traffic, you know that there is a major war that is scantily getting attention right now in the U.S. media, and if it is, coverage has been rather selective. It is a major ongoing terrorist campaign, one that goes back to a beginning in 2002, escalating ever since, and has turned out to be a controversial one in a number of ways. It has to do with a little country called Yemen, a name most Americans would think is a Jamaican Patois street call. Yemen! What has happened, besides a big booty mama getting hollered at on the street, is that this little country has become a focal point for another one of our fundamentalist proxies in the region, Saudi Arabia, but covertly has been a place where America gets to play with its PlayStation pilots and new drone toys. Well, partly in thanks to the wrecked infrastructure, the country is now the happening spot for a new war front, and our buddies in the House of Saud have decided to pick up the dirty work. Let's examine, shall we? The first strike the public that isn't drooling over Bruce Jenner was made aware of happened in 2002. It was a drone strike on a vehicle that killed six people and was supposedly against a suspect in the USS Cole bombing. Yemen had already incarcerated a dozen men suspected in the bombing, but the U.S. unilaterally decided that Kaid Salim Sinan al-Harithi was the primary suspect. Well, Amongst those six people was U.S. citizen Kamal Darwish, who the New York Times in November 2002 characterized as being, quote, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Assistant U.S. Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz openly discussed the strike with CNN on November 5th, only noting that a, quote, successful tactical operation has gotten rid of somebody dangerous. It would be many years before senior officials would again openly acknowledge the covert drone project. Since then, U.S. air and drone strikes in Yemen have escalated consistently, reaching their peak in 2012, with 485 people killed in Yemen in a single year due to strikes, according to information clearinghouses like New America Foundation, who dedicate themselves to gathering AP and international press articles. To date, Estimates are between 863 to 1,123 killed by American airstrikes in Yemen, the vast majority of which are drone. Things went along in relative silence, with very little concern in America for the assassinations or the random victims that got caught in the crossfire, even if they were U.S. citizens. That was until the American government began deliberately assassinating its own citizens. A major controversy unraveled in the case of Anwar al Alaki, a U.S. citizen born in New Mexico and a civil engineering graduate of Colorado State University. The case is well documented, and I won't presume to give you a synopsis for information that is readily available over the Internet, but it was the subject of ACLU lawsuits, Supreme Court decisions, and long, protracted debate. On September 30th, 2011, A U.S. drone strike murdered al-Awlaki as he was eating breakfast in Yemen. His crime? Well, that was rather vague. He was suspected of being involved in the 2009 Christmas Day bombing plot. Outside of that, his crime was based in thought. He was the lead editor of Inspire, an al-Qaeda magazine designed for a Western audience. However, the killing of a U.S. citizen without due process put the Obama administration's back against the wall. More so than ever before, it became an imperative to openly discuss what was a rather unspoken policy of assassination in the U.S. Let us now fast forward to the present day. In 2014, the Yemeni government fell. It's an old Middle East story at this point, being the wretched region that it is. And here's how it goes, in case you haven't figured this old hat out already. Imperial powers support totalitarian regimes. Totalitarian regimes overarch their power over marginalized groups. The marginalized group fights back. Order collapses. The imperial powers step in and pick sides as proxies. Wash, rinse, repeat. Got it? Throw away your intro to Middle East politics handbook. I got this. The Yemeni state a longtime ally of the United States and a dictatorship known for opening gunfire on its own citizens on occasion, had finally lost all legitimacy with Houthi opposition groups and civil war broke out. In steps our old pals, the House of Saud, with Operation al hazm Storm. Apparently one thing Saudi Arabia has learned well from the West is naming their bombing campaigns with epic Bruckheimer-inspired titles. Since then... Yemenis have been subjected to a massive terrorist campaign that has targeted residential areas, health centers, and markets. The United Nations Human Rights Office says the number of Yemeni civilians killed in three months since the beginning of Operation Al-Hazm Storm has risen above 1,500, with no end in sight. United States announced that it was assisting with intelligence, targeting, and logistics, not to mention the arms dealing industry, of which the United States remains the largest exporter, with $23.7 billion in sales approximately a year. According to David Cortwright, Director of Policy Studies at the University of Notre Dame, Saudi Arabia rose its spending in this time to $6.5 billion, a 55% increase as compared to last year. Quote, Growth in Saudi Arabia has been dramatic, and based on previous orders, these numbers are not going to slow down, said Ben Moores of the same department. Imports are expected to rise to $9.8 billion this year, an increase of 52%, which would make Saudi Arabia accountable for approximately 41% of conventional U.S. arms exports in a year. That's one piece of resentment. And doesn't account for the drone striking, some of which has led to highly disastrous consequences for any chance of peaceable solutions, like the drone strike in Yemen that killed 12 people during a wedding party in December 2014. It's had no investigation by anybody to this day. Or the drone attack in early winter of 2009 that killed 41 civilians, including 22 children, in Al-Majala, southern Yemen. An American BGM-109D Tomahawk cruise missile was later identified from shrapnel as the culprit by Amnesty International. And then there are the occasional Americans who get put under the dubious term of collateral damage. Warren Weinstein, for example, was an American contractor and director in Pakistan for the J.E. Austin Associates firm. He was kidnapped by al-Qaeda in his home in 2011. Warren Weinstein was killed when on January 14th this year, a drone strike killed him along with an Italian hostage Giovanni Laporto, and an American al-Qaeda leader Ahmed Farouk. The White House announced it four months later, on April 23rd, 2015, claiming that they were unaware of any of the victims' presence at the sites targeted, and that they were targeted as a, quote, signature strike which are launched based on behavioral evidence around a site suggesting a high-value target is inside without knowing who is actually inside. Spin the barrel and pull the trigger! Now, you'll notice that I call these campaigns terrorist campaigns. You'll also notice that in the course of following Agent Provocateur, I haven't swallowed the state's pablum hole. It's called thinking, and it makes me a very bad American in the current state of affairs. It does happen to make me a very good American in the historical context, but I'll have to explain that in another episode to you aspiring redcoats out there. But the idea that terrorism is something only official enemies do is grade-A approved bullshit. In 1996, UN Resolution 51-210 defined it as, quote, Criminal acts intended or calculated to provoke a state of terror in the general public, a group of persons or particular persons, for political purposes are in any circumstance unjustifiable, whatever the considerations of a political, philosophical, ideological, racial, ethnic, religious, or any other nature that may be invoked to justify them, or, as simply put by Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the use of violence and threats to intimidate or coerce, especially for political purposes. So, terrorism is pervasive in the modern world, despite any postures about international law and order. These are the problems you face when you reverse the Magna Carta and eliminate due process. You would think that if any group should understand the importance of fair trials, it's Satanists. so must I sit here and explain this part? Probably not. You see, at some point, the civilized world came to an agreement during around the reign of King John Lackland in the year 1216 that those who were suspected of a crime would be entitled to no illegal imprisonment and a swift execution of a trial. This was another measure to prevent a bigoted mob from behaviors like lynchings and witch hunts, but in a consistent rational world, it should also prevent terrorism. According to the rules of civilization, if a person is suspected of a crime, they should be apprehended and brought to a fair trial. But when you kill suspects, regardless of what side you claim to be working for, you bypass norms that were established decades ago. And if you happen to advocate we do so and then whine about the retribution that comes about in the exact same manner, your complaints fall on these deaf ears. So as you can see, I don't buy this war on terrorism shit, and I don't think most people would when they break out of their comfort zone. Americans who watch a lot of Fox News after a day at the mall have a very different point of view than people who've seen the carnage, whether it's here or in Yemen. Everyone is guilty. From the White House down to the lowly jihadi, they're all terrorists. Want to stop terrorism? Make steps towards whatever capacity you have at your disposal to stop participating in it, even if it's just disseminating information. Then I'll take you seriously. Until that happens, I do declare the war on terrorism is a fraud. There is no war on terrorism. What we're witnessing is a deterioration of civilized values. Thank you for listening to Agent Provocatory. Join my newswire at Facebook.com slash agent provocateur on nine sense. Good night.
1: Welcome to another Old Nick's Peep Show, the only segment that delivers beautiful women, masculine men, and intriguing information on all things Old Nick. Joining us as always is the very first Old Nick chick, which Marilyn Mansfield, and her handsome man managing editor, Warlock Zothamog. How are you guys today?
5: We are very good, thank you. We're doing well, thank you, Adam.
1: How are you? Fantastic. I am dying in the heat. I swear this is un—it's not natural right now.
4: Supposed to be 101 here Wednesday. Oh man, I am not ah. looking forward to it. With the New York City humidity too. Yeah, I will not be
0: leaving the house.
1: That's brutal. Yeah, yeah, it's not quite breaking 100 here. I don't. I can't even complain now that you just topped everything I would possibly complain about the heat. All right. So well, I'm hope doing the great.
5: Predictions are wrong. Yeah. Let's yeah. Move.
1: Seriously. Well, uh, it is uh, obviously another month. We have gone through the last episode, uh, devouring it page by page. And we have another one on the horizon, but uh, maybe a little too early to talk about that. What I would like to do, if if we can, is maybe talk a little bit about uh, the process of conceptualizing uh, maybe an entire magazine or maybe just a story. Can you go through and, and uh, explain to us... Uh, rabid fans here what it's like for you to sit down with magister johnson and just sort of brainstorm an episode
4: um well it's always you know a delight sitting down with with magister johnson Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but he is you know he um well you gotta sit down with the chairman yeah you gotta sit down with the chairman that's that's the first thing
5: there's gotta be
3: whiskey
4: (laughs) yeah a cigar's not for me you yeah. know about that already but <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
4: um you know uh bob is a uh he has his standards you know and not everything he's gonna approve and um yeah. you know even i mean we we if someone writes to us via social media facebook whatever we always pass the message along to bob and encourage them to write him them themselves but um yeah, he doesn't approve every single idea. A lot of ideas he does approve. You know, we we get great content. Um, but not everything is, you know, suited for old Nick, which is mm-hmm. understandable for
5: anything, you know. Um, you know, and a lot of times we just like to open the table to discussions for any kind of ideas that we may have. You know, sometimes I come up with ideas and we'll talk about it. And he might be all gun ho about it and be like, yeah, that's something we could do in the near future. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's where the ideas start to flow. Um, yeah. Also, I think each issue, uh,
4: he puts things that go together in each issue as well.
5: Right. You know like, what I mean? We'll, we'll come up right. with, with ideas for, like, themes and stuff like that. We've right. Had the, uh... So
4: some ideas get put off for the next issue mm-hmm. or something like that. So Yeah, you know, we
5: always like to have a sort of, like, halloween witchy type theme for october yeah you know sometimes we have the more scantily clad uh covers for the summer you know that that kind of thing these these ideas always kind of mesh together as um issues get worked on as the, as they become getting closer to completion
1: that's actually a really uh, nice thought that i i hadn't really put down before is 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 tailoring it okay it seems obvious you know these come out seasonally traditionally so why wouldn't you tailor it to the season but aside from the cover or maybe the centerfold I mean general content do you take into consideration um you know the season for that as well I mean you guys have uh original fiction that's written for the magazine you have uh obviously reviews are dependent on what's uh, happening at the moment, but um, how far does it go in tailoring the content for the season that it's released?
5: Um, You know, it depends if we can match photo shoots to have a similar feel, then -hmm. of course that, that gives the magazine a a more of a thematic kind of uh, approach to it. Um, You know, as as photos are submitted and as models are picked for each magazine, then then we work from that point. You yeah. know, it doesn't always work out that way, but when it does, it's it's like magic. It comes together perfectly.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say because on the other side of that is that you're trying so hard to make everything fit perfectly within that theme that, you know, you're you're potentially cutting out uh quality content because it doesn't maybe necessarily match that theme. So it's nice that you're fluid and, and, you know, it's sort of a guideline rather than a a hard, fast rule. Um, Yeah.
5: I mean, you know, we, we just, um, we tend to have a diversity of, of models in each issue. So, you know, of course we don't want to just populate every page with the same kind of look and feel. Mm You want to be able to appeal to a larger audience. And you know, touch on everyone's special kinks, you know. But you know, it's like I said before, when it works out, it's it's great.
1: Well, let's delve a little deeper on that process. I mean, I, I genuinely enjoy the idea, uh, a, a bit of a ritual, if you will, of sitting down. Uh, you have your glass of whiskey. You have your cigar. Um, just the process of, of going back and forth, of uh, conceptualizing, you know, in, in, uh, in my industry, you know, we at times refer to it as like a war room where you go in and just start just shooting ideas out of your head and then uh, trying to refine them if, uh, if it ends up working out. Can you walk us through that process uh, with with you and Bob? Um, what are you drinking? You know, are you sitting in his den? Are you sitting on a deck? I mean, uh, w- w- describe the environment. Paint a picture here for us. The uh,
4: the den and the deck, right? Both. Because <laughs> they go they go out to uh, they go out to smoke. I told you that story when I tried to join the men smoking cigars, but yeah. I didn't do too good. I lost my voice for three days. Forget it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I usually sit there with a uh I don't drink whiskey either, so hmm. I'll have a glass of wine or something. and the men sit there and, you know, discuss everything, and we just all give our um. Usually it's around the fire
5: pit as well, right? Right. Well, you know, Bob has a beautiful house where yes. he has a fire amazing house. On, in the backyard, on the deck. So that that is the choice place to be when we're smoking and, and brainstorming. Mm. And, of course, the fire serves as an inspiration to us. And, um, you know, generally one of these brainstorming sessions, we just discuss anything and everything that comes to mind. Um, sometimes the... Uh, conversations revolve directly around the issues. Sometimes we're talking about the website. Sometimes we're talking about social media and how we can utilize these things to, you know, boost sales. Um, Conversations flow in and out of each other. You know, sometimes um, piggybacking off of one thing to another. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's no... Set formula to it, like we don't sit there with a secretary and a you know, notepad going <laughs> and, over the last minutes.
1: Marilyn's not the secretary,
4: and, and I and I uh, I yell out, How about naked men? a few times, and, blah, 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 <laughs> and well, you know, those, those would be the ideas
5: that don't always get used,
4: <laughs> but it's not dismissed. and then I pout. I sit there, it's
5: not dismissed, you know, once again in dealing with this industri- industry, yeah. we have to cater to all. And, um, that might be something in the future to look into, not to say that it'll be old Nick, but you know, it it might be something else. You know, it could be another publication. Yeah. (laughs) There's money to be made everywhere.
1: Let me delve a little deeper into that because I I really enjoy that idea of, and, and especially because I have to live it on a daily basis of, of you, you're doing a healthy back and forth on ideas. And, uh, have you ever come across the situation where you guys are fleshing out an idea and it actually becomes part of the magazine and you don't like it at all. Like have you in a, either a model or an article or something that you're just like, oh, why does this have to fit? <laughs> like why?
4: No, the, I, I don't think so because everything is so carefully thought out for old Nick, you know, and, and, you know, Bob is amazing that way. Bob goes all out on life in general, you know? Hmm. I mean, Everything he does in life is just so, you know, well thought out and classy, and and everything you could tell he puts so much effort into everything. I mean, down to you know his house, his everything, his his clothing, everything, and the magazine, you know, is is the same thing. So, you know, I don't think he, I don't think we ever thought, oh, why did we put that in there? I don't, I don't think so.
5: Yeah, I've never really had that yeah. experience. So. To say that I was kind of uh, disappointed with something in the magazine, um, you know. Yeah, there, I don't necessarily are, mean the quality, but
1: I don't necessarily mean the quality. I mainly just no, no. no I understand. Content. Like we put okay. something
5: in, and then an afterthought, we were like, eh. yeah, um, no, no, no. I, I can't I, think of anything. I, I can. Um, I can't think of any instance in, in which something like that may have occurred. Nice. Um Hopefully, it, it won't occur. You know? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, as a, as a designer, I, I often, you know, find that the, the client sometimes uh, dictates what an element is going to be, you know, what a tone or a style is going to be. And I personally, though I don't agree with it, I'll put my best foot forward and make sure it, it serves the purpose that the client wants it to, even though I may not like it. So that that's kind of where I was going, like, you know. Even though yeah, it's the best quality can possibly be, you may not be 100% on board with it, but it's still out there because, you know, you cater to a lot of different uh, tastes in Old Nick. You know, the, our
4: experience is most people who contribute things to the magazine are so happy to have it in there that they, yeah. you know, they, they're very um, lenient with the, the content. You know what I mean? Yeah. So...
5: Yeah. And, you know, we don't have to necessarily abide by standards of clients because we're kind of doing everything ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the contributions that we get, you know, we pretty much have free reign to um, utilize in whatever fashion we see uh, best for the magazine. So it's not like we have to abide by a certain color scheme or, you know, place the logo in a certain position on the page you know, we pretty much get to do the layout as, as we see fit. And that's why we're, you know, always 100% satisfied with these, with each issue.
1: Nice. Well, on that note, let me, uh, let me ask where the good folks listening would be able to uh, reach out in order to get their content into Old Nick Magazine.
5: Um, as always, if they want to contact us, they can email us at info at oldnickmagazine.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Old Nick Magazine. They can reach out to us there. We have a fan page. Um, They can find uh, me and Marilyn on Facebook as well, or they can go to oldnickmagazine.com and check the footer for all our social media links.
4: I would just like to say that if you're thinking about modeling for Old Nick, you have to realize that this is a satanic magazine. You know, um, A lot of girls will inquire about it and not realize that, and We have to, you know, kind of say it, and normally they're okay with it. But um, just, you know, just make sure you're totally comfortable with that before um, writing a ton of messages and that sort of thing, because... (laughs) Yeah, we've been getting a lot of
5: those lately about... uh, Yeah,
4: and they don't know too much about the magazine, and that's, you know, or they know about it, but they don't get it, I guess. I don't know how to say
5: it, but... (laughs) And, And also... Remember that it is a nudie magazine, so, you know. So nudes are required.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
5: We do have a triple X version of the magazine. But they don't have to do the triple X. if they They... they want to be included in both versions of the magazine. Oh, in both versions, yes. Which gives them double exposure. Right, right. Therefore, the bottoms should be nude as well. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm a fan of nude bottoms.
5: What? (laughs) I'm a You're a fan, fan of nude bottoms.
1: <laughs> yeah. well, you know, Wait, aden. That's not no what I meant. Being, that's not what I meant.
5: People have no problem being topless, but then bottomless is. I like never a whole
4: did other no issue. I never did bottomless <laughs> modeling. I did one time, but I was covered with a sheet. So that
5: doesn't count.
2: I was bottomless.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I was bottomless. I just had a sheet of over me. We, yeah, okay. That but weird Freudian, and like, Freud and, Thing, remember? Yeah. Freud and Lee. I had too much to drink right <laughs> Remember
5: that weird shoot I did?
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember. With the sheets. Yeah. With the sheets.
5: I
4: don't know. <laughs> well, I do have to say I naked I... line in the sheets.
1: Hold on, I wanna hold <laughs> on to this. She wasn't
4: doing laundry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but nice. I was
5: bottomless, so yes,
1: right.
2: it was
5: implied already. And you know, but I the point that I wanna stress that <laughs> you know You're even... not gonna be covered with a sheet. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although we appreciate the implied nudity artistic photography, this mm-hmm. is a magazine that publishes a hardcore version of it. And models should be aware that, you know, we will be asking about news. Yeah. We appreciate all of the submissions, but please be aware that you will be asked about it. And if you're not comfortable with it, uh, just uh, don't even bother. Yeah.
1: I, I got two <laughs> things that tack on to that. The first is, I have implied nudity every single day. <laughs> like that's—it's <laughs> that's just wearing clothes. That's implied nudity. Like I'm naked under this, baby. Um, the second is I would really like to talk to you about expectations um, from a non-satanist about submitting photos to a satanic magazine. I would—I would really love to delve a little deeper into that. But let's let's put a pin in that and talk about that next time, if we can.
4: Okay. Let's hashtag and
1: Freudlin. <laughs> I don't know hashtag <laughs> Fridland, people
4: <Trending. laughs>
1: well thank you both so much it's always so much fun talking to you and, and, and just pulling the sheets back a little bit wider on what old Nick magazine is like and, and, and sort of the world that you two live in it's really fantastic thanks so much for your time
4: don't pull my sheet back I got no bottoms on <laughs>
1: it's all I want to do <laughs> thank you
5: Adam thank always you Adam <laughs>
1: All right, well, until we can chat again (laughs) and pull that sheet back, maybe. Hail Hail Satan. Hail Satan.
5: Hail Satan.
1: That's going to do it for another show, people, and we hope you enjoyed it. We would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9 Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satan Net, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9cents and get updated on weekly topics. Uh, these are public forums, so if you want to post to us, uh, we welcome it, but don't show your ass. <laughs> um, and remember, the only way we're going to continue doing this podcast is through your interaction, through your encouragement. So reach out to Witch Zafdig. let her know if you are a transgender, if you have, what your experience is as a Satanist transgender, and if you're a member of the Church of Satan, what that's like for you. And if you have any questions, uh, again, reach out to her. Um, and if, of course, if you want to learn more about the Church of Satan or Satanism, there's one place to go. That's churchofsatan.com and a number of books, but two that I think are absolutely mandatory to read. Satanic Bible, Satanic Rituals. Check them out. Once again, thank you for joining me. As always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... A witch Such a beautiful, beautiful witch-saptic. It is so nice seeing you again. Oh, thank I you. So you're,
0: much. you're adequate as well.
1: I'm gonna go shoot myself now because adequate is just an insult. (laughs) Until we can chat again. Hail Satan!